We appreciate it. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14, as we continue to make our way through this recounting of God's wonderful, marvelous acts toward His people. You remember last week, we began this narrative of the Israelites' movement toward the Red Sea as they are leaving out of Egypt. They are on a journey to the Promised Land. They've been in captivity down in Egypt now for some 430 years, but there is a problem. They're on this journey, and they find themselves with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. You'll remember what they cried out last week in Exodus chapter 14, verse 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Even though the nation of Israel had seen over the course of however many months or years it was in the giving of the plagues, they had seen God's marvelous acts. They had seen the hand of God at every turn. Yet here in this text, at a moment in which they sense their lives are threatened, the nation of Israel lacks faith. And then we hear those words from Moses in verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation that the Lord of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the, Egyptians, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And now we come to this text. The Lord has promised them, today, you're going to see the salvation. You're going to see the strong arm of God. And now we come to this text that we've been waiting for in this entire journey of Exodus. We come to this seminal moment in which the nation of Israel is going to be delivered by the Lord. And it takes place in several scenes as we will see this morning in this text, here in verses 15 through 18, God reveals His purpose. God is going to reveal His purpose <clears throat> in sending Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, in sending Israel into the Red Sea. God's going to share with us the entire purpose of why He's sending His people down into the sea. Look what the Lord says in verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Moses is crying out on behalf of the nation of Israel. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Move forward. Go forth in the promise of the Lord. Move forward with a sense of certainty, knowing that I will be with you. After all, they had just been told these most important words. The Lord will fight for you. How quickly we would forget, do we not? Go forward. 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people, <clears throat> that the people of Israel may go through dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, <clears throat> his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The nation of Israel, like you and me, we learn of what God's intended purpose is in some ways for this entire narrative. It's not only communicating for us the purpose of why the nation of Israel will go down into the Red Sea. It's also a communication of the entire purpose of the narrative. Thank you. David's going to get me some water. Thank you, Michelle. We're learning the whole purpose of this entire narrative. We've seen this narrative communicated several times now. This isn't the first time we go back to the narrative, even before we see the plagues. We see several narratives in the plagues. We see it communicated again as we're leading to that 10th plague. What is God's intended purpose for Israel being down in Egypt for 430 years? What is God's intended purpose for all of these plagues? What is God's intended purpose at this very moment to send Israel down into dry ground and in a few moments to cover the nation of Egypt with water and they drown? This text reminds us that not only is this the one purpose of God in this situation, but this is the same purpose of God for my life and for your life and for all of our lives. That God might receive glory. That God's great and glorious name might be reverence, that God's great and glorious name might be honored, that God's great and glorious name might be worshiped, that it might be praised, that it might be adored, that it might be forever upon the hearts and minds of all peoples. Thank you, my friend. Here, yet again, God gives us clarity for what his entire purpose is for this narrative. This is a narrative that we will see played out throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. What is God's intended purpose in sending Jonah to Nineveh. What's God wanting to accomplish? A number of things. It's going to be a pointed rebuke of the nation of Israel and and Jonah, but we also see God is a missionary God who is desiring even these pagan Ninevites to give him glory, 
to give him honor, to worship his great and glorious name. And then he says it here in verse 18, that the Egyptians may know that I am Yahweh. We've seen this narrative play out throughout Exodus. There's been this battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh and which one is going to reign supreme and clearly Pharaoh thinks himself to be supreme and and sovereign and all-powerful. He thinks everything rests in terms of everything in Egypt rests under his control and command. And yet time and time and time and time and time again, Pharaoh learns the lesson that neither he or any one of the other local deities with inside the Egyptian worldview control anything. Who controls it all? God. Yahweh. The one divine being, the creator, the one who reigns supreme over all things, the one who is not confined by locality. The one who's not confined by space. The one who doesn't lack power. The one who is omnipotent and omniscient. He and he alone reigns supreme. Friend, if there's one narrative that you and I might learn from this text of scripture is God's desire that he and he alone receive glory. Now we're gonna see this fleshed out in this text. God's gonna gain glory through the obedience of Israel, and God's gonna gain glory through the disobedience of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God God is gonna gain glory through the salvation of the nation of Israel, and God is gonna gain glory through the destruction of the pagan Egyptians. And you and I have a choice this morning. In what way will God gain glory in your life? Will it be through salvation? Or will it be through destruction? Will it be in your yielding of your will and your life to him? Or will it be in your rejection and your stubbornness against him? God reveals for us in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 what his intended purpose of sending Israel down into the Red Sea is. But Israel's also going to learn a lesson that Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. They're concerned, right? They're worried, right? They've already expressed that in verse 12. They're going to learn that lesson that with God, absolutely nothing is impossible. Look what happens next in this narrative in verses 19 and 20. God's presence provides protection for his people. I want you to notice two actors in verses 19 and 20, and see if you can identify them for me. Then the angel of Yahweh 
Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. So the text is telling us Israel's marching, right? There's an angel of the Lord, and where's the angel of the Lord located? Before he moves behind. In front. He's in front. So notice what the text says. There's an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is going to move positions. And now the angel of the Lord is over here behind, right? All right, let's keep going. And the pillar of cloud. Now, what do we know about the pillar of cloud? You remember from last week? Who is the pillar of cloud? Who? You guys are really smart. It's it's God. We know that it is God's presence. So now watch it. We have an angel of the Lord that's out in front. The angel of God has now moved to behind the nation of Israel. We now have the pillar of cloud. And what does the pillar of cloud do? It moved from before them and stood where? Behind them. Now, I don't want to press in too much into this text, even though I want to press in a little bit. How many actors are displayed in verse 19? Well, hold up your fingers for me. How many actors do you see in verse 19? I see one. I see two. I see three. Anybody want to go for four? I mean, might as well make it one, two, three, four. All right, I'd like to submit to you this morning, we see two actors at work. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, and you've already seen it as you study the narrative in the book of Genesis. You can go back to Genesis 18 and 19. We see this figure of the angel of the Lord. I'd like to submit to you this morning that this angel of the Lord is an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. And what you have at work, and I would agree with you that said three in the larger narrative, what you have at work through the presence of the pillar of cloud and fire is actually the work of the triune God. The manifest presence of God himself. But for sure in this text, the angel of the Lord being a representation of the pre-incarnate Christ and the pillar of cloud being Yahweh himself, the divine presence of Yahweh, we have in this text an early expression of the working of God, the Father and the Son, and providing redemption for his people. God through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, has always been at work on behalf of his people, redeeming them. So we have it. Angel of God, now behind. The pillar of cloud, 
now behind. And notice what they do. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, with one coming near the other all night long. Now we're not exceedingly clear in terms of what's happening here. Is, is this a provision of giving light to both sides? Is there some type of uh, covering that is divided between Israel and Egypt so that Egypt can't see what Israel doing? Or is there darkness for both sides? Take a guess and we'll all say amen to it. But this we know for sure. God is at work protecting his people. However God is doing it here, we know for a fact from this text of scripture that there is a division and there is a division of cloud and darkness, but there's also light. And this division causes such that the two can't see one another. So the Egyptians have no idea what the Israelites are doing. And the Israelites have absolutely no idea what the Egyptians are doing. But we have every idea what God is doing. God is at work on behalf of his people. And notice this next scene beginning in verse 21. God is going to provide a means for the nation of Israel to go safely over. Verse 21 and 22, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, Yahweh himself, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. So God's at work all through the night on behalf of his people, driving back this strong east wind, and notice what the text says, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, I mentioned just briefly last week some of the discrepancy among, quote, scholars as it concerns the actual crossing of the nation of Israel, was it the Reed Sea in a little marsh that was two inches of water, or was it the Red Sea? And I think contextually here, there's some Hebrew words at play here that would absolutely indicate that what God is doing here is an overwhelming, miraculous event, <clears throat> even by this connotation of this word wall. This word wall in Hebrew <clears throat> is an indication of a large, high, tall city wall. We're not talking about going to the beach, and as the waves or the tides out a little bit, building a little sandcastle, you know, a, a foot high, to see how long it is before the waves overtake it. No, we're talking about a massive wall of water. Here God is providing a safe passage on behalf of his people that highlights yet again, God indeed is fighting on behalf 
of his people. And look how God accomplishes it. God accomplishes the task through his servant Moses, who will stretch out his hand. He will stretch out that staff over the sea. And God does what he's been doing for the nation of Israel. He provides for them. This isn't the first time we've seen a strong east wind, is it? What happens the last time we saw a strong east wind? Go back to the second plague. It was with a group of locusts. Now pay very careful attention to the reading of your Hebrew Bibles. What do the locusts bring about? Destruction or salvation? Ah, and how did God bring about destruction? Through a strong, what type of wind? East wind. Don't be surprised if you're hearing this story for the first time that what the narrator is giving us, the recounting of the very words of God, is not so much a sign of salvation, but a sign of coming and pending judgment. In other words, the same means that God uses for salvation for the nation of Israel is going to be an image of judgment for somebody soon. God is going to provide the nation of Israel a means of salvation. He's working all night long. And notice what the text says. What type of land did Israel go across on? It was dry. They were able to get all their cattle and their, and their animals and their buggies or whatever else they had, all their people. How long was this taking place? All night long. Now, why couldn't the Egyptians see what the Israelites were doing? God, through the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud, had provided an obstruction for the nation of Egypt to see what the nation of Israel was doing. They had no idea. God provides a means of salvation for the nation of Israel, but notice what happens beginning in verse 23. God confuses the Egyptian military. God does what he promised. He fights on behalf of his people. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the, from the Lord, before the Lord, for the Lord, notice what the Egyptians recognize? The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, isn't it interesting? The confession of pagan Egypt. The pagan Egyptians are willing to make a confession that believing Israel can't comprehend. What does Israel do back in chapter 14, verse 12? Oh Lord, we wish you would have left us back in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. Who has a better confession of faith at this moment? Israel 
or the nation of Egypt? Egypt recognizes the strong, mighty, powerful hand of Yahweh. And by the way, this is also a narrative we've seen play out throughout the, uh, throughout the plagues. This isn't the first time that we've seen a collection of the Egyptians confess faith or hope or a confession of the power of God. I'm not saying that they were confessing faith here in terms of believing faith. By faith, I'm saying they're confessing uh, an awareness that Israel's God is more powerful than the Egyptian God. There's confusion. Egypt doesn't quite know what is taking place, so they, they run down into the sea. They're now after the Egyptians. The veil has been, has been lifted, but notice what happens here in verse 26, 27, and 28. God is going to get glory over the destruction of the wicked. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. So in other words, the image is the nation of Israel has crossed the sea. They were on one side. Moses stretches out his hand. The Lord, through a wind, pushes it back. They go to the other side. Now Moses is on the other side of the sea, and he's stretching out his hand back over the sea, looking back in the other direction. He's now looking back in a westwardly direction. Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel. They had walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What God used as a means of salvation for the nation of Israel, He now uses as a means of destruction for the rebellious, for the hard-hearted. He now uses as a means of glory against those who rejected his reign against those who rejected his kingship, against those who rejected his word, against those who rejected his prophet. God gets glory through the destruction of these wicked pagan people. And by the way, we're going to see as we hop back into Exodus at the end of the summer in the Song of Moses that Moses is going to sing of all of these people who now know the mighty power of God. The narrative of what God has done for Israel and salvation, the narrative of what God has done toward the Egyptians in terms of destruction, Moses is going to tell us in this hymn in chapter 15, Moab now knows about it. The Canaanites now know about it. God's name is being glorified through the destruction of these pagan, wicked, evil people who rejected his sovereign reign. Several years ago, I preached through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And Paul speaks of 
the concept of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, you might remember. Paul is imaging lawlessness as a concept that would rule in the hearts and lives of people from the moment of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, and that lawlessness taking place until Jesus returns. So this spirit of lawlessness resides in the hearts and lives of everyone who rejects Jesus as Savior. So friend, if you're here today, and you've not repented of your sins, you've not trusted in Christ, regardless of how kind and gracious and good, regardless of all the wonderful things you might do, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, Paul is speaking of that spirit of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. He's speaking of you. But Paul is not only speaking of a spirit of lawlessness, he also speaks of a man of lawlessness. What we image also as the Antichrist. And listen that Paul recounts this narrative in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. Before verse 8, lawlessness is going to be pervasive. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now think back for a few moments to our narrative in Exodus. You remember the first two or three plagues in Exodus? What was Pharaoh doing? Moses would come in, turn the water into blood, and what did Pharaoh do? He called his magicians. And what did his magicians do? They did the same thing. This narrative happens two or three times in these, in these plague narratives. So the same thing that's happening before Christ is happening after Christ and will happen until Christ returns. There are always people who are trying to imitate the power and the glory of God. And it's all a work of Satan. Verse 10, and with all wickedness, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Now, what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that caused them to go down into the Red Sea? The text says that God has hardened their heart. He sent to them a strong delusion to do what is contrary to sense, what is contrary to common sense, what is contrary to what they would normally do. So the way God is working with Pharaoh is the same way that God is working among those who have the spirit of lawlessness 
It's the same way that God will work with the one who is the person of lawlessness so that they may believe what is false, verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. See, friends, God's glory is not only revealed in the salvation of those who by faith trust in God, but it also is seen in the destruction of those who willfully reject God. And this sign of destruction by Pharaoh and the Egyptians is a sign of destruction that Paul saw and recounts for you and me in 2 Thessalonians and also a sign of ultimate judgment that John gives us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white rock, a great white throne, and him who seated, was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and the sky fell away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were, in the, who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, what God does to the pagan Egyptians is not the first time we see God get glory through destruction in the Old Testament, is it? We go back to Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. And what happens to rebellious humanity in Genesis 6? All of humanity experiences what the Egyptians experienced in the crossing of the Red Sea, drowning, death, destruction, because of their rebellion. But look what Israel does, verses 30 and 31. Thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. How did Israel get to the other side of the Red Sea? Well, let's back up for a few moments. How did Egypt get out? How did Israel get out of Egypt? By faith. Remember what the Lord told them to do? Put the blood on the doorpost? And you'll avoid the death angel. How did Israel get to the other side of the Red Sea? By faith and trust in the very word of God. 
And look what the Bible says. God saved Israel on that day. God has always been at work saving people by faith and through faith. This is how Abram is justified before God. Abram is justified because he believed in the promises of God by faith. And look at this text of scripture. Yahweh saved Israel that day from what? Look closely at your Bibles. What did he save them from? The hand. Do you see that? The hand of the Egyptians. Now go to verse 31 for me. And Israel saw the great what? Israel saw the great? Wrong. Ha. Israel saw the great hand. Our Bibles translates that power. That is, what that, that is what that phrase is conjuring up, power. So we could read it this way. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the power of the Egyptians. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. But the literal Hebrew word is, is hand. Yahweh saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the great hand of Yahweh. This is the last act. This is the last battle in the book of Exodus between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And guess who wins? Yahweh. Yahweh wins. If you've read the rest of your Bible, Pharaoh is a representation of the forces of evil, of Satan. And we read just a few moments ago from Revelation chapter 21. This battle between the worldview of man, the battle between Satan and, and God is, is going to continue. But in the same way that we see Yahweh winning here in the book of Exodus, guess who wins at the end of the age? Yahweh. And the question for you and me is, on what side of the Red Sea will you be? Will you be on this side where by faith and trust you responded rightly to the promises of God's word? Or will you be right in the middle of it? where death and destruction have poured in over you because the spirit of lawlessness abides and rules and reigns in your life. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word to us. We thank you that with clarity, God, you have communicated to us your your mighty hand, your power. And we thank you, God, that in the same way you call the nation of Israel to respond to you by faith, so so too are you calling us to respond to you by faith. So God, we ask today that you'd work in each of our hearts and lives, that you, God, would strengthen our faith and our trust and our hope in you. Would you take a few moments where you're seated today and reflect on the preaching of God's word? In what way are you walking by faith? Any walk by faith is in any measurable way an act of foolishness by the world. It was an act of foolishness for the nation of Israel to go down into the Red Sea By all common sense, that's not going to work. But God saved them. How are you following God today? How are you responding to God today? Perhaps you're here, friend, and you've never trusted in Christ. And you've seen the destruction of the nation of Israel. Sorry, the nation of Egypt. Their rebellion against God. And God, by His Spirit and through His Word, has has shown you today that's you. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you, where you're seated this morning, cry out to the Lord and ask him to forgive you? Confess your need for him and trust in him. For the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a few moments, friend, we're going to stand and respond to the preaching of God's word. And as we stand in response to the preaching of God's word, myself and Pastor Travis are going to be down in front. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, as we sing, please come forward and we'll be glad to share with you. Or friend, you can turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us just to pray with you. That like the nation of Israel, you'd walk by faith. 
that like the nation of Israel, even in those moments in which it doesn't make sense, that you would respond rightly to God. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Father, as we respond to you now, might our responses be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you